back to another episode of Much Language Such Dog. I'm Bérangère and I'm your host for today with Karine. Hello. In this episode, we're going to talk about bilingual breeding with leading expert in the field, Dr. Holly Joseph. Holly is an Associate Professor of Language Education and Literacy Development at the Institute of Education at the University of Reading. Her research focuses on reading development and difficulties, vocabulary learning, eye movements during reading, developmental disorders, and what we're going to discuss further today, bilingual reading development, especially in children who speak English as an additional language. On top of her research, Holly is the co-director of Bilingualism Matters at the University of Reading, as well as the co-director of Postgraduate Research Studies and the director of SELM, the Centre for Literacy and Multilingualism at the University of Reading. Originally from the UK, she speaks English and Spanish. Hi, Holly. Hi. Uh, so let's begin. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, Holly, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, fantastic. This is, um, I, I'm, I, we said this a little bit beforehand, I have a reading disability myself. So like, getting to learn about bilingual reading is something I'm really excited about. Um, so to start off, as we ask everyone, how did you get interested in language research and more specifically your research interests? So I guess I've always been interested in language and language learning. And I grew up in a few different countries and have a parent who um, actually only speaks now his third language. So his first language is Malayalam, his second language was Swahili, and now only speaks his third language. So I was always really interested in sort of language and identity from a from a young age. My my mum was a French and English teacher, so I sort of had language teaching and learning all around me. Um, and then I, I studied languages at school and I studied Spanish at university. And then I went to live in Spain for a year and then in Mexico for five years. Um, and I mean, wow. I guess one thing I, I yeah, I realised through that was how little Spanish I knew <laughs> from having studied it formally in the UK. Um, so... I, you know, I arrived in Spain and, you know, could barely communicate, really, um, and learned then very quickly because, you know, what was my, you know, that was this complete immersion, I guess. And then Mexico for five years. And in Mexico, I taught English. Um, so I sort of been on both sides of the kind of teaching, learning languages. Um, so I've had all that experience. And then and then I decided to go back to university and study psychology. Um, and then it all sort of came together in a sort of second year psycholinguistics module that was taught my, by my, who um, Simon Liversidge, who went on to be my PhD supervisor, actually. And um, I was just fascinated to sort of learn about language processing, particularly kind of, yeah, language processing in real time and how we can use these sort of psycholinguistic tools to, to, to measure comprehension as it occurs in real time. So particularly sort of eye movement research, but also other kinds of research. Um, and I think having taught English and taught grammar and stuff, it made me sort of really interested. In, I mean, most people hate those modules, those psycholinguistic modules, but I really loved it, I suppose, because I, I knew about the grammar. And so when we talked about syntactic ambiguity effects, that wasn't, you know, something weird to me. That was something that made a lot of sense to me. So I think I, I came to it sort of through, you know, personal experience and then starting to study psycholinguistics at the time that was a good time for me to kind of see why it matters and why, why, why it was interesting. And yeah, just sort of went on from there, really. That's really cool. I love stories of how people got to where they are and when it involves loads of, loads of traveling and loads of encountering new like, uh, 
like surprising things and unexpected things. That's really cool. And so most of your work now and what we're going to talk about today mostly is about reading. So just to set the scene, could you tell us in a few words how learning how to read works and like kind of basically what the steps are? Because personally, I can't remember what it is like to learn how to read. And I reckon that there might be also some different strategies that are taught between different languages and different education systems. So if you could just tell us about a little bit about that to begin with, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, most of the research um, on reading development has been done, surprise, surprise, in English. Um, so, you know, that's what I know about the most. And I think there's, there's now a move towards studying um, learning to read in other languages, which is really brilliant, because as you say, of course, it's a very different experience, um, depending on the orthography, the, the writing system um, and the language. Um, so, I mean, basically... If you think about an alphabetic language in particular, there's kind of two components to it. There's the kind of decoding or, or word reading. Um, and when you think about um, a child learning to read, that's probably what you think about. And then there's the other side, which is the ultimate goal of reading, which is understanding what you're reading. Um, so, um, so, so the sort of decoding side, we sometimes think, call it the mechanics of reading, because it's really about kind of translating the, the, the written um, symbols on the page into a phonological form, so into the sound in the alphabetic language. So, yeah, you see the word C and you know, and then you have to learn that it's the sound K and, you know, A is an A and T is a T and then you have to blend them together to make um, the word cat. And um, so how easy or difficult that stage is depends on the language that you are learning. So in a language uh, that a transparent language um, like Spanish or Finnish, um, and a transparent language is a language where there's a consistent mapping between the, the written symbol and the sound. So when you see the letter A, it's always pronounced, for example, A, um, and there's no, there's no exceptions to that. So in Spanish, that's true. And that makes it quite easy to learn to this part of learning to read quite easy because once you know your letters and you know what sounds they correspond to, you basically can read anything. Um, so in those sorts of languages, um, of which there are many, um, that early stage of reading is fairly quick and, and um, fairly successful for almost all children. But in a language like English, which is an opaque language, so as, yes, anyone who has awful. learned, uh, yeah, really <laughs> awful. Um, so, you know, the word, the letter A could be like A as in cat or R as in car or air as in care or A as in gate. So, I mean, it's just so many different um, sounds and it goes both ways because also a sound can map onto multiple spellings. So it takes a lot longer and um, children often need but you know it does need more support with that um, and there's more ways for it to go wrong I guess than in um, a language like um, Spanish and then in a in a logographic orthography like Chinese it's a whole different sort of set of difficulties because there's a huge memory load because you have to learn each character you know there's no kind of um, taking them apart into these sort of separate graphemes or phonemes, you have to just have to learn the character. So it depends on what language you're learning and um, it can be easier or difficult. But once you've got past that sort of decoding stage, then you sort of have um, access to the meaning of what you're reading. Um, and so then you need to understand the meaning of the word and how it fits in with the sort of sentence and longer passage. And 
learning to understand what you're reading is much more complex and multifaceted and there's lots that goes into there so vocabulary knowledge grammatical knowledge but also things like um making inferences and um relies on working memory and executive function so there's loads and loads of stuff going into that process um and we know less about that and how children learn that because it's more complex um and we also know less about how to help a child who struggles with that aspect um, um of reading um just you know in terms of sort of bilingual reading um i guess in the UK anyway, the, the sort of um, general finding, although many people question, you know, whether we should think in this way, sort of comparing <laughs> children who speak more than one language to children who speak uh, just one language, just this kind of monolingualism norm idea, when of course monolingualism isn't the norm globally. But in, in the UK, children who, who, who are called EAL children, so children who speak English as additional language, tend to be good at coding, good at grammar, and not so good, good, inverted commas, I can't see <laughs> in other podcasts that I'm doing inverted commas, um, tend to have poorer, in inverted commas, vocabulary and reading comprehension, which makes complete sense if they have had less exposure to the language. But that's the general pattern um, that we see in, in those children. Yeah, I wanted to mention because I think you you specifically said that it's decoding and that's kind of how I've always looked at reading myself mm. where it's pattern recognition because uh, yeah. especially like yeah, so in those languages where it's a one-to-one mapping so like Finnish or Spanish, my mom's from Finland. Um okay. so when she, I was learning to read in English, she's like, "Yeah, just sound it out." And I was like, "No." <laughs> it took me a very long time to spell certain words because I was just like, "This is not how I thought that this letter would sound." Like the letter C, my name starts with a C. But you're never sure. Is it going to be an S or is it going to be a K yeah. or like what's happening here? Yeah. Um, and so it really like it's easier in some ways. And then I'm really happy you brought up with like for Chinese languages as well, um, because, yeah, you're looking at the whole character. And mm. so then for, not only do you have to get the meaning, but then you have to get the sound and then there's like tones and everything that goes along with that. And so mm. I lived in Japan for a short while and reading those words it would be great. So my coworkers would be like, oh, do you know what this says? And I'm like, yeah, it says this. And they're like, oh my God, wow, you can read that. And I'm like, you're, you're like, Japanese is getting so good. I was like, oh no, no, I just recognize the character. I have no mm. idea how to say this, um, yeah. like those kinds of things. So it's, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it is really interesting when it goes from alphabet to alphabet. So yeah, more yeah. English, uh, more research outside of English would be great. Yes, yes. And we are moving that direction. Absolutely, definitely. Lots of, lots of research on China, on Chinese, on less on Japanese, but some on Japanese, lots on Arabic um, and lots on Indian languages. But yeah, we have we have a long way to go. I guess that's it is um, a sad sign for the past of this field, but a good sign for the future of this field that is like becoming slightly less, I, I would, like we could use the word maybe decolonize that would yes. stop having just a focus on English as the, the one and yeah. only thing that exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead yeah. actually putting all of the other languages that exist, yeah. like putting them back into the spotlight where they deserve to be. Yeah, and, and you know, not always comparing those language exactly. sectors to English as mm-hmm. the kind of benchmark. I think that's hopefully where we're going towards because that's what, you know, the last... I don't know, 20 years perhaps of kind of, you know, cross-linguistic research has always been or almost always been, okay, let's do another interesting language that's under research and let's compare it to English because, you know, no language Mm -hmm. can stand on its own as something that's interesting in itself. So now I think we are moving away from that and that's a very good thing, obviously. Wow. 
It is frustrating as a researcher, though, whenever you want to compare languages because there's such a prevalence of English research. So it's like, well, if I want to support my argument, I have to bring in English and it kind of hurts. And you're like, damn it, English. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think I it's, definitely it's, believe we are moving away from it being this baseline, which yeah. hopefully in like, oh, sorry. And I was just going to say it's the same with monolingualism, isn't it? Yeah. So if you have a bilingual or multilingual group many you know you put you, you send something off for um review and often reviewers will say well where's your monolingual control yeah. group like, we don't need a monolingual control group why would we you yeah. know so i think oh there's God. two things going on yeah. there there's kind of taking away english as the norm and taking away monolingualism as the norm so we've established kind of how reading works and how we have to do this decoding and mapping of letters and sounds and all of that. And it depends on it. So you've done research on reading and vocabulary development. So how mm -hmm. does reading affect that kind of language development for new learners? So, yeah, I mean, I guess in, if you're thinking just about your first language, you know, until about the age of nine-ish, depending on, you know, when you learn to read relatively fluently from about when that point which is usually around age nine your main source of new vocabulary is becomes reading um, um and that's because written language has many more rare infrequent words than spoken language so you're more likely to encounter a word that you don't know when you read rather than when you speak to some or listen to somebody speaking um and so that's one of the many reasons that you know in this country and many other countries, you know, schools and other sort of education people are really promoting reading for pleasure because we know it's such an amazing source of vocabulary. Um, so, so I so so then what that means is that um, the the reading can affect can increase your vocabulary development in a way that you you know it's probably the best way to increase your vocabulary. Um, development and so the way that you do this is that you um you know you're reading a sentence and you come across a word that you that you have never seen before or at least don't recognize and don't know what it's what it means and then you use the context surrounding that word to try and work it out and context can be really really helpful so for example something like um um, I'm not very good at thinking of examples. Um, so he was he was so scared he couldn't move. He was paralyzed with fear. So you've never seen the word paralyzed before. You know, you've basically had that explained to you in the pre in the first part of the sentence. So that's a really, really helpful context. So from if you just read that, you know, you'd probably have a really good idea what paralyzed um, meant and you could continue understanding, you know, the subsequent sentences. But then you can also have really unhelpful context. So the most unhelpful context there is, I think, is something like um, she didn't know the word paralyzed, so she looked it up in the dictionary, right? So that tells you precisely zero about the meaning um, of the word. Um, and so when you're reading, what you do is you, you know, normally you have context that's somewhere in the middle of those two and you um, use the context to to, to help you to infer the word um, um, meaning and over these multiple encounters with a word in different contexts, you, um, you slowly build up this representation of that word meaning to the point that you can use that word yourself sort of flexibly and um, in, in different um, contexts. So that's a long 
a long process and you know a lot of the research that I and other people do we try to capture that process in the lab so we try to you know we we um we make up these sentences and we have multiple encounters with these new words and then we try to um um capture that process of learning over time and what almost everybody who does word learning experiments like that will tell you is that we can't capture it because we can't have enough we can't have enough um, exposures. So you can capture the very early stages of it, but you can't realistically capture it because it goes on and on and on for years. You know, I mean, even when we're in our 70s and 80s, we're still learning more about the meaning of a word that we first saw in our 20s or even younger. That is so interesting, honestly. I hadn't really thought about that because, yeah, like reading, you just think it's something you do as a kid. And as you get older, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I read some of my undergrads papers and I love it when they clearly pulled out a thesaurus and I'm just like, (laughs) I have no idea what this word, let's Google that. That's such a good point. Yeah, as you get older. And also you hear all those people who are just like, you use a word in a sentence and it's like, I think I'm using that right. I'm not 100% sure because we use words that we're not 100% sure, but we've heard the context, so... Yeah, yeah, which is a very brave thing to do, actually, isn't it? Because, you know, some of us, maybe me, don't use words until we're really, really sure what it means because we don't want to look stupid. So actually experimenting like that, which is what you do, of course, in a second or third or other language, you have to, you have no choice but to do that. Um, It's a really brave thing to do. and It's a very good way of, of, of developing your vocabulary. I, f- I feel like, I mean, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but I feel like, because I learned, I mean, I learned English technically at school, but I really learned mm. English only when, like, really reading by myself in English and things like that when I was about 18, 19. Mm. And I don't really, I'm not, I have no memory of this process for French, obviously, but for English, I remember the word reckon that I kept on read, on seeing everywhere, and I was like, I'm not encountering it in a context that actually allows me to understand what it is, but I refuse to look it, look it up in a dictionary because I was like, no, I don't want the translation in French. I want to understand what it means, um, just on its own. And I think I must have read it about 20 times before I actually understood what it meant. And it's true that with this word and other words as well, the first time that I actually used them myself when speaking, I was just like, put them out here in a sentence and just like try and have the most neutral facial expressions that people around me wouldn't know that actually I was not sure what I was doing um and (laughs) as as a (laughs) grown-up and speaking this other language it it was like really always scary the first few times and I was really proud when nobody was actually behaving oddly as a response to me using this word and they would just like continue the conversation so I could think Okay, I must have used it well then. Yes, <laughs> go me. Yeah, exactly. I think it's hard, particularly hard with informal language. If you're using the word reckon, you know, in an informal way, yeah. like, oh, I reckon he's not coming. Yes. Um, that's really hard to, and that, that's often when you see a, a difference between an extremely fluent speaker of a second language and somebody who has grown up with that language. I definitely mm-hmm. found that when I was in Mexico, I would sort of throw out these sort of <laughs> forms of slang and then see there's one word which I probably shouldn't say. Well, I'll say it, it's pendeja. And I just thought it was like idiot. And I was sort of throwing this around. It's not pendeja, blah, blah, blah. And then later I found out that it's like extraordinarily offensive. And um, and I just think, you know, here, there and everywhere. And you see that when people swear as well, don't you, in, the, in other languages. They sometimes yeah. just 
you can't really put your finger on what it is, but it feels like just not quite right. Um, and so that you just need loads and loads of exposure in different mm-hmm. contexts to, to, to know exactly when when to use it. That's so good. <laughs> our other host, Ava, yesterday actually showed me a text. She was just like laughing at her desk and I was like, what's happening? And it's just because it's like, you know, in English, we have that a way that you could say, I'm sorry, is, well, I'm afraid that we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so it was a text conversation. Uh, it was just like, I'm afraid we won't have that product in stock. And the person's just like, there's no need to be afraid. It's okay, you can do it. <laughs> just like, oh, um, oh. <laughs> You're not wrong. I just love those. Yeah, because it's those little moments. That's like sometimes you're like, yes, okay, that's one way you could say that. (laughs) It's beautiful. I really love it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of learning more than one language is that you don't, you're never really aware of these things in your first language or, you know, your dominant language, but you see it in other languages, which gives you this metalinguistic awareness, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can sort of step back and see across more than one language, the way that people use language. And that's one of the big benefits of of being bilingual and multilingual, I think. It, It really is, honestly. I really do love that bit about like with bilingualism and everything. And it's the thing that's interesting, though, is that when your languages have different alphabets. So I mentioned before, yeah, with Finnish, thankfully that's the same alphabet, but then my dad spoke Hebrew. So that's a very different alphabet, Um, which thankfully has the same annoying differences like English does where some of the letters Mm. just make different sounds just for fun. Um, So (laughs) how does bilingual reading develop? I'm assuming it's not like monolingual development. And can there also be like differences or problems that manifest just because they are bilingual reading? So... I mean, it's just so complicated and it's, it depends so much on, you know, the context of what the lang- what your languages are and what the writing systems are. So your example, that's quite interesting, right? Because Hebrew is read from right to left and um, Finnish from left to right. Is that right? Yeah, um, it's the same as English, yeah. What that does, I mean, a lot of my research is eye movements and I've always been fascinated by, you know, what people do with their eyes when they read in two languages one that goes left to right and one goes um right to left so so I mean I think there are benefits and challenges of learning to read in two languages um the benefits are that you that you can bring to bear on your second language what you've learned in your first language is not always be the case even if they're different writing systems even if they differ in many ways there will always be something that you can um bring to that second language um, um and one as i just mentioned is metaling- metalinguistic awareness because you understand how languages um work um in reading in particular phonological skills are um really important so that's um about you know um understanding the the, the sound structure of a language and in order to learn to read you need to develop good phonological skills and so whatever your second language you learn to read in that will, um, those phonological skills will help you. I mean, they will help you more with some languages than others, but they will definitely help you. Um, so that's the kind of benefit of learning to read in, in more than um, one language. And in terms of meaning as, of, as well, of course, you know, there are, um, you know, there are cognates um, across languages um, and just having a concept in one language will should make it easier for you to learn the meaning of that word in a, another language. I mean, that's not specific to reading, of course, that's that's more generally. Um, although, yeah, of course, you have to be careful of 
false friends as well. Um, that's another thing that uh, that I uh, a little story from Mexico when someone told me they were constipado. I don't know if either of you speak Spanish, do you? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So mm-hmm. constipado, and so I thought they were giving me, you know, <laughs> intimate details about their their you know digestive problems, but actually they just <laughs> had a cold. <laughs> Um, it's and the same thing with embarazada. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So many friends. Yeah, every yeah, time yeah. they're like, "Soy embarazada," and you're like, mm. "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> <Not bad>. yeah. <laughs> what I what I like is is English speakers uh, who use um, introduce to say that they're going to introduce themselves, but they use it in French, and you're like. Well, I don't think we're that close yet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's it's a sort of lovely thing, isn't it? About you know, I mean, I've, it's very charming when people speak mm-hmm. in ways that aren't on you know the way that a so-called native speaker would speak. Um, and then it's also you see in pronunciation, of course, don't you? So in Spanish, you would have you know like the difference between. Well, there's all the you know you can always bring some rude example in, can't you? Like beach and well, let's not do beach. Let's do uh, <laughs> let's do. Um... That's a problem that I have though, because when I want to say that I'm going to the beach, I'm going to a very because I know and I, I know it's not really a short e and a long e compared, but yeah. I'm trying. I learned it with my French baseline. Okay. Uh, so now when I say that I'm going to the beach, I'm doing an extra long e just yeah, to make yeah, yeah. sure I'm going to the beach. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My Israeli cousins do the same thing, but they're always just like, maybe I'll just be a little cheeky now and just be like, I'm going to say beach like how we would say beach. And I'm like, yeah. oh, no, don't say beach <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, although those, those are not really specific issues, are they? But um, I guess it can make spelling harder. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's such a it's hard question to answer because I mean, if the question was, is it easier to read in your second language, which is, I know it wasn't your question, but, um, you know, I think the, the the answer to that is sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So your your first language, and it also depends how, you know, how um, good your reading is in your first language. So if you go to, if you come to the UK from, let's say, Syria um, and um you're, you didn't re- um, have much reading instruction in Syria. So you're coming to learn your second language at the same time as learning to read in your second language. That's a, that's a pretty difficult situation for you compared to somebody who uh, is already, say, an adult, is very fluent in Arabic, and they're coming to learn to read in English with all of that. And so both of those um, offer opportunities and kind of challenges um, because you're not going to have the transfer from your first language if your first language is not very fluent in terms of your reading. Um, um, but that 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 influence of your first language can both kind of, you know, help you to read better in your second language and also kind of um, present challenges. So I don't think there's a sort of straightforward answer to whether it's easier or more difficult to read um, in your second language. I think it depends so much on the context and the languages and the linguistic distance between the languages um, and lots of other things as well. Sorry, that was an extremely <laughs> long-winded way of not really answering the question. 
Um, anyway, that was a great answer. And so now for all of these uh, questions, is it is it different for children compared to adults when learning to read in a new alphabet? So again, it's probably very much about context and it's probably less about being an adult versus a child and more about experience and exposure to the language. So uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of said this um, just now, really, I suppose. But, you know, if you're learning to read in your second language, you can already read in your first language, then that's very different from learning to read in your second language without ha ever having been taught to read before. So the first one is often the, the situation that adults find themselves in. So they can already uh, read in one language when they learn to read in their second language and they can bring all this uh, knowledge that they have um, to that process so that can be helpful. And then children are more often in that second circumstance that they're learning to read for the first time in a language that is not their first language. Um, but another big difference between those two contexts is probably that children usually have a lot more time with the language. So often children are going to school um, and the language uh, of instruction is the language, well, of course, that they're learning to read in. Um, and so they have maybe six hours a day of, you know, exposure to that language and learning uh, reading instruction, whereas many adults, of course, it's not always the case, but many adults are sort of going to a weekly French evening class or something. And so their exposure is much, much reduced. So there used to be this very prevalent idea of, you know, children as sponges kind of soaking up a language without any effort and you just sort of plonk a child in a, you know, country and like that, they've learned the language. And I think now people don't really think that that's right anymore um and we know that the adults you know they, they, of course they have more knowledge generally than children and they also have kind of cognitive I don't know sophistication um that, that, that makes them efficient learners um but they often don't have much time so I think I think it's not about adults and children being different per se I mean of course adults and children differ in terms of their working memory and their knowledge and their vocabulary in the first language etc but I don't think it's so much about adults versus children, but rather about the the, the context in which adults and children tend to learn to read. No, that's that's a really interesting insight. Actually, we're going to talk about context again in just a little bit. Just before then, um, still in the in the process of learning how to read, uh, but maybe now just taking a little bit of a tangent in terms of uh, unlearning. And for example, because um, bilinguals who have not used one of their languages for a very long time can forget words when speaking. So that, that's attrition. Mm -hmm. Is it also something that exists uh, for reading? So, for example, forgetting a word or at least the meaning of a word when reading? I mean, I don't know of research looking at that specifically, okay. but I mean, my guess is yes, absolutely. So language attrition, why wouldn't it apply to both spoken and written language and I guess also because we're we're less well the words that we encounter in reading are likely to be less frequent rarer um, words so if anything we might be more likely to encounter words that don't seem familiar to us um, during reading um, and and you know we do see things like so, for example, in this country, somebody who grew up speaking, I don't know, Gujarati, for example, at home, but then and then went to, you know, university and studied engineering and learned all of this sort of technical academic language in English, you know, th they're likely not to know 
those words in Gujarati. So Gujarati becomes their home language where they talk about sort of domestic things and um, and English becomes their language that they talk about, you know, work-related academic mm. um, things. <laughs> Um, and, and that is also the case for people, perhaps like you, who move to um, a country, you know, as a young adult or an old teenager, and their second language becomes so dominant yeah. that, um, that, that there are words that they learn. I mean, you know, I had this experience as well, um, moving to Spain and Mexico, there were, because I was quite young, there were words that I learned for the first time in that second language. Yeah. And so when I think of them now, I think of them in Spanish trying to think yeah. of an example um but you know so there might be a cognate so I'll give them a Spanish pronunciation even though the I'm speaking English or that sort of thing so that a that age that you acquire a word has a has a big impact on you know the semantic networks between it and and other words I absolutely have that because I moved to the UK six years ago uh, for my PhD and I did all of my PhD in English all of the concepts that I learned for my PhD in psychology because I never studied psychology before um, I just learned in English so now when I have to talk about my research in French I can't because I I genuinely don't know the words uh, to talk about all of these things in French yeah yeah and you know it's all part of this kind of England English dominance as well right because in terms of your career that's not going to hold you back because all of the journals you're going to publish in are in English right so it's sort of part of this whole you know Eng- England is the you know the king of the world and you know why 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 sh- why is it better to publish that in English compared to another language and it probably means that you're never going to learn those words in French because in what context would that be needed it's really just talking to aunts and uncles um that don't speak English that you have mm. to uh like several years ago when I was an undergrad I had to get my gallbladder removed and my aunt called me and she doesn't speak English. And she was like, oh, your father told me that you're sick and that you have to like, you have to go to the hospital. Um, is everything OK? And I was like, I have no idea what the word for gallbladder is in Hebrew. When, when has that ever come up in conversation? And so, like, because, you know, you have gallstones. I literally was like, uh, yeah, I have a pain in my stomach and there are rocks. I have rocks. Yeah, I was like, I have rocks in my stomach. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, uh, I don't know what else to say. Um, the thing I wanted to mention about that, that it's been interesting, is that a trading an alphabet is kind of a weird thing to happen. Because now whenever I read in Japanese or in Hebrew, because I don't do them very often. Uh, Hebrew, I've been actually reading a little bit more lately because my dad has been I don't know, switching to Hebrew and text a little bit more it takes me so long to read. And sometimes like, I also have to like, especially in Hebrew, because the vowels after like your second year in primary school, they stop putting vowels on words. You then have to go through all the different pronunciations of the word and try to remember, okay, like, what does this mean? I have accidentally been like, oh, what's this new word? This is exciting. And it was like Macintosh. And I was like, oh, whoops. <laughs> like as an yeah. adult, you're just like, I swear I used to speak this language. Um, so that's really interesting that because there's lots of research on sort of diacritics in you know Arabic and other languages and the role that they play in early reading development. But that's really interesting. Somebody who you know went through that then had a sort of you know break, if you like. So you did you haven't kept up that kind of fluency of you know re- being able to deal without that vowel information and then coming back to it and thinking, oh, give me my diacritics back, <laughs> <Exactly>. please. <laughs> like my mom and I, it's because my sibling reads in Hebrew more often than I do my mom and I will read something and we're like oh my god do you know what it means I don't know what it means 
And, you know, there's, there's so much to do with identity in there. I mean, it's so fascinating. So my, I mentioned before my father, who grew up speaking Malayalam and Kerala and India until he was nine, moved to Kenya, spoke Swahili until he was 17, and then came to the UK and did a degree in, in English. And now his only real language that he, he can communicate fully in is English and what that means for your identity right because also you know of course race comes into it as well um so you know who is he (laughs) you know what's his linguistic identity and what's his and it's almost like he's sort of had his identity taken away from so he's had to sort of take on this sort of British identity doesn't feel British but how can he claim you know to be Indian when he doesn't speak that so he goes back to Kerala and people can't understand him because his Malayalam is so bad. It's, it's very fascinating, isn't it, about how, mm-hmm. you know, it really is really an integral part of how we see ourselves and who we are. And, you know, I don't think we always recognise. We think of people, you speak a language and then you always speak it. I mean, I'm the same with Spanish. My Spanish is terrible now. I hardly speak it, haven't spoken it for years. And, you know, for me, it's not a problem because it wasn't my first language. And so it's not ripping something away from me. But I think for other people who've had that early experience and particularly particularly if their parents or their wide family speak that language and they they're kind of like yourself and then they they're sort of taken away from that because of you know the the language experiences they've had and what they speak it's 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 a really really sort of sad and you know colonial you know geopolitical you know crisis I suppose I have that with with Spanish that is my second language and I no, my Spanish is is really rather bad uh, because when I really wanted to improve my English, I just completely just set Spanish aside. And now I, I mean, I can understand it, but it's I, I'm also feeling very not confident when speaking. I feel like I'm so stressed and anxious when I try and speak Spanish. Um, and I also feel bad because first, well, it's it's my half my family's language, so I should speak it, but also. I think that if I had done it, if I had set aside Spanish for a language that was not English, I would have felt better about myself. But for English, that is already just so dominant everywhere. I just feel awful that I I, I just surrendered to to English and and my using English is even easier for me than using French. So yeah, it's um, but it is it is a big thing to do with identity as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but also language status. I mean, I I spoke to somebody a while ago who, who grew up speaking Gujarati at home in the UK and she um, loved languages at school of course she did French and Spanish and German because those are the only languages they teach in this country and um, and then went on to university and did languages and at the end of university got really good at I can't remember what they were Spanish and French and thought oh maybe I'm bilingual now and then she sort of went hang on a minute I've been bilingual since birth but I never thought of Gujarati yes. as being a language almost because it doesn't have the same status yeah. as these, you know, Western European languages. And I just thought, my goodness, where have we gone wrong to, to you know, for that person to only think after doing, you know, some, you know, and I know having studied Spanish at university that that doesn't, does not guarantee that you think a, a good quality, you know, high proficiency in that language. That she was speaking to her parents every day in Gujarati, but didn't think that that constituted bilingualism. That's it's interesting because yeah, like we've heard time and time again, and like it's happened to all of us. I'm assuming at some point in our lives where it's just like your parents are decided, oh, English or whatever the majority language is is the more beneficial one for your financial future. 
which is such a terrible thing. And so they pull back on that or you just don't see it as good as um, in that kind of situation. And it's just... It, it it does affect these things exactly because it's like I don't spend as much time reading in Hebrew. I spend absolutely no time sp- reading in Hebrew Finnish anymore um, because everything's translated into English now. And so it's just like I'm just going to do that. And like, but why? <laughs> why is that? And like, I know I understand like colonialism and the lingua franca and the the history of it all. But it's like in this day and age, especially the digital connection of everything. Yeah, okay, we use English because everyone's quote unquote speaks English. But it's just like. We can get past that now. Like we don't have to publish in just English. Why do we still do this? It's so important. This is a massive tangent, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> I sorry. Mean, no. let's, it's, it's a good point. conversation. I think it, it it was actually a good like talking about the context where you speak the language that actually can lead us back into the conversation that we wanted to have. Um so yeah, to focus more about the, the context when learning how to read. Um So is there a difference between the children who learn how to read two languages at school, for example, in bilingual schools, for example, in Wales or in some parts of Scotland as well? Um, or And those who are only taught how to read in one language at school and then they have to do the work as well at home uh, independently or with their parents and, and to read in their second language. In, in their, actually, no, they're probably their first language mm. at home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of research on this and again <laughs> the risk of you know saying same thing for every question you know it's so much about context because um you know I mean the, the really obvious one is how much um exposure and reading instruction you're getting in in each language so if you go to a bilingual school if it's a really balanced bilingual school and depending on the context you know in, in theory that should work really well because you're getting you know approximately equal amounts of reading instruction in both languages of course in this in England at least that's that's fairly rare and so much more commonly is the case where you have somebody who um speaks let's say Urdu at home and they go to uh you know a state primary school uh, and uh, everything's in English and so they have loads of exposure to English they learn to read no problem at all in English and then it's on the parents right to make sure that they Uh, learn or do so how do they do that I mean early on you know I guess it's it it's relatively easy if if you if you have the time etc because you read to your children um you get them excited about stories in your uh home language you hopefully have books in your home language um at school but then at some point they need some actual you know direct reading instruction and um And sometimes you can go to a complementary school, but that would be a maximum probably of six hours a day. I'm sorry, six hours a week. And if that, that would be a lot of hours, so probably more likely like three hours. And all, that won't all be reading instruction anyway. So when you think about the hours you know, versus 30 hours of reading instruction or at least, you know, English, you know, um, exposure, you know, it's just not it's not enough, is it? And there's no way that that other your home language is going to be at the same standard as um as English when when the amount of time is so different and and interestingly uh, um a PhD student of mine um um looked at bilingual schools in Saudi Arabia and in the UK so these are Arabic English bilingual schools but the reality was because of what we're talking about just now about status of languages etc those bilingual schools were actually massively tipped towards English so I can't remember exactly but you know they obviously Arabic was taught in Arabic and um you know studied Quran in Arabic but most of the other subjects were in English so they weren't really balanced bilingual schools and what she found in schools in London and in Saudi Arabia is all of those um children 
their English reading and English generally was way, way stronger than the Arabic. So that was even in Saudi Arabia when the title language is um, Arabic. And that shows you the danger, I think, of sort of assuming bilingual education is a good thing because those, those children then potentially won't be able to communicate with their grandparents or wider family. And they've essentially lost the language to some extent. And probably from talking to people, um, probably because, you know, those parents saw English as the, you know, gateway to success and, you know, understandably so. And so those children arguably were, were losing out, depending on what your perspective is. But then there's loads of other factors as well. Um, um you know, about language status, as, as, as we mentioned, and also about sort of socioeconomic status. So, you know, if you look in the States at sort of Spanish English bilingual schools, you know, not exclusively, but those children going to those schools are maybe more likely to be living in poverty and everything um, that that brings. And so if you look at their sort of English and Spanish um, reading, um, you might say that, oh, it's not very good. Um, compared to whatever your monolingual norm is. But actually, there's lots of factors um, that might be contributing to that. And if you compare that, say, to Canada, where lots of children who are in French-English bilingual schools, many of those children come from sort of privileged, wealthy families where they have the resources, et cetera, to really support reading development. Both of those languages, it's not really a fair comparison. So, yeah, so, so in theory, if you know, you could make everything equal in the world. I think going to a bilingual school where you have equal reading instruction in both languages is a really great thing to, to raise bilingual children and biliterate children. Um, but in reality, I think it, it doesn't always work out like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I like that you said biliterate at the end there, because yeah. that is the thing. You can be bilingual, but you can also possibly not be biliterate. Um, and yeah, it's it's there's the give and take of like, okay, well, do we do the thing where we do all of our one subject in one language, another subject in another language, or do we do it that we switch them back and forth, which I think would be good because you don't necessarily learn that vocabulary in another language unless you have the opportunity to do it. Like, so it's like the same, I know like parents have mentioned specifically, it's like once their kids get into high school, they have to switch to English because their children don't have those words to do like complex math in that language, or they don't have the words to use those that talk about this kind of new map that they've not seen before, something like that. Um, I, I think the Basque country has some schools that kind of do that, that they switch with, depending on like what day, is it going to be in Spanish or will it be in Basque? And like the percentage, I guess, I don't think, I don't know if it's family by family or school by school exactly, but they can choose which is the dominant language of the, the the teaching, which is pretty cool. I, I That would be amazing. And I think it's great that they have the opportunity to do that. Cause like, it's like, I went to a bilingual primary school, which is hilarious. Cause I honestly didn't even think about that until right now. Half of our day was in Hebrew, half of our day was in English, but even in our Hebrew classes, which was, yeah, mostly like reading the Torah, <laughs> which was a lot of that. And we did have like grammar classes and things like that as well. Um, there was still a lot of English in that as well, because like, especially when it comes to biblical terms, you're just like, what does this mean? <laughs> and it's kind of hard to teach that to like a six-year-old. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, does anywhere exist that has that good balance? Is there a perfect school? Um, I couldn't say if there is, honestly. Yeah, who knows?
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the ones that I know that are successful, you know, it's basically about privilege and wealth. Like there are ones in this country, you know, European schools where they have French and German and Spanish and you can choose wit and English and you can choose which two languages your child wants to be. You know, who goes to those schools? It's, you know, it's people who already have all of the resources to, you know, help their children succeed. So and, you know, there's private schools as well who really focus in on languages, European languages always. Um, Always. Obviously. Obviously, obviously mm-hmm. European language. You know, and the fact that, you know, if you want to do GCSE in Arabic or Hebrew or, um, you know, other languages where people who speak them are brown or black, um, you know, you, you just have to do that on your own, right? I mean, or you get a private yeah. tutor or something. But if you want to learn a language at school, you do almost exclusively French, German, Spanish, the colonizers' languages. Yeah. <laughs> I, exactly. Yeah. I think in Scotland for A-levels or hires, whatever, what do we have? (laughs) I can never remember what those Um, exams are called. And advanced hires. Yeah. I think you can do them in Punjabi and Urdu. But the problem is there is no one to teach those in schools. So if you're just coming with your home languages, there is a chance that you could Mm. do well on these. But because of like you having to learn specific, like explicitly learns grammar Mm. structures and like conjugation and things like that that could be really difficult so it's like look we're giving you the option but it's like but I don't know a single school that has this as a subject like when do you yeah and I think this is a really great segue to kind of say like there's no perfect school so what are some kind of recommendations or tips you might have for parents who want their child to develop this biliteracy Um, because obviously they're not necessarily getting it at school or do you have any suggestions I mean, you know, the best thing that children, that parents could do is read to their children in 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 their home language. But obviously, that requires you know a lot of organisation, depending on how you know spoken your language is in this country and what access you have to those books. I mean, it's all very well to say that, right? But you know, if you're an English speaker, you can just pop to the shop or the library and get some books like that to get you know lots of books in a different language, particularly if they have different orthography. is not straightforward. But I mean, that's definitely a great thing to do when um, your children are young, so before they start school. And we um, we do a lot of work at Reading at the Centre of Literacy and Multilingualism about, you know, and I know bilingualism matters as well, about saying how brilliant it is to read to your child in the home language and how that will not in any way you know um you know prevent them from learning English and you know in any way you know you know delay their development or anything like that like that is the best thing that you can do they have English everywhere around them don't worry about that so that's one of the things we really try and sort of drive home but lots of parents still feel that they will disadvantage their child by you know reducing the English input and the thing is that you know often parents who or not often sometimes parents who think that they're not maybe in a position to be providing really rich input in English anyway so they have amazing input in their home languages but actually they're probably not the best source of English anyway and there's sources everywhere that child goes so that's one thing obviously as they get older it gets harder right because then then you know if there are complementary schools or Saturday schools that child can go to fantastic obviously they cost money um but also you know for some languages they don't really exist and or they're very far away and so that's that's really tricky and then it falls on the parent and we know that excuse me 
you know, many children in this country, you know, they get to about age six or seven and they start getting a bit embarrassed by the home language. They don't want to speak it in public, it, particularly if it has low status in this country. And, you know, all the sort of relationships that has with racism and all of these issues. So it can be really, really hard work to yeah. do that. You have to be massively dedicated. And I think it's incredible that parents do that. You know, when they're, you know, they speak whatever language to their child, their child goes, oh, yes, okay, mum, I'm coming or whatever, you know, and you have to just keep going and keep going in the face of, you know, complete stonewalling. And I just think <laughs> it's amazing that, sh- that parents do that. And then when their, pe- when their children grow up to be adults, they are almost always grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And if they yep. don't do that, and it's quite understandable why you might stop, often their parents, like me, I'm like, Dan, why didn't you speak to me in Malayalam? You know, you could have, you've denied me, <laughs> you know, the yeah. child to be multilingual I'm, and I'm doing course, this to my mum I, I blame her I was like technically I'm not very good at Spanish but I'm not the one responsible here <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault yeah yeah but then you know I mean it, it may be less so with Spanish but you know for my father I mean he purposefully gave me an English sounding name and he uh you know it was all so tied up with racism you know so, so speaking Indian languages was you know a reason to be violent towards somebody or bully them and he didn't want that and you know this was a long time ago in the 1980s and you know I I get that it's It's really not that long ago (laughs) and you still see like you see parents still make those decisions like the area I was really lucky so the primary school I went to when I was younger we had a lot of people from the Middle East um like my dad's Iraqi like we'd have parents who are from Iran um for Yemen uh like from a lot of places there was still a very large like Ashkenazi like American Jewish population as well but still like because of that I never really had that stigma until I left the region I lived in um because like where I grew up it was a very large Korean population a very large Jewish population and it wasn't until like I left my county that I was just like oh this is not the case everywhere. When sometimes when I'm saying I'm Jewish in front of people, you'll see a look on their face. I have been yelled at or looked at in the street for speaking in Hebrew. And it's just like, why? <laughs> oh, okay. Like, I'm I'm really lucky my mom is Finnish. So like, which is a terrible thing to say, literally is one of the <laughs> worst things I can say that because I look this pale. Yeah. And so yeah. people don't immediately yeah. assume yeah. Yeah. that I'm from the Middle East. And yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah but then but then you have this kind of white passing thing right and then people I mean this is completely off topic now but you know then people sort of deny you your heritage I don't know if exactly. you have this people are always like oh, yeah, yeah. But you don't even look Indian Holly you could be Spanish I'm like well maybe I could be Spanish but I'm not Spanish exactly and you know maybe it was you who used to call chant the p word at me when I walked past the playground so you know like don't don't deny me you know it's like the you know both sides so when I was a child you were happy to call me that and uh, now you're telling me that I'm actually yeah so it's a it's a double-edged sword I think being and I do know there's massive privilege it goes with being a pale skinned non-white person definitely but there's also that other side of it as well yeah it's so frustrating trying to fit in a community when it's just like well I'm Middle Eastern and people look at me and they're like well are you and I'm like or if I'm just like, yeah, I'm the brownest person here. And they're like, are you? And I'm like, I actually am. And that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, but yeah, it's it's really interesting how uh, 
once again, I, I think we just keep coming back to this concept of identity and how we exist culturally. And it's amazing how like just talking about just reading has yeah. brought us to this spot, yeah. honestly. And like, yeah. it is this so, so important, honestly. It's really important. We're going to segue into a very different part of reading now. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, to get back to reading. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm I'm not very knowledgeable about uh, language disorders. The only thing I know things about is, is autism, really. But um, I gather that a, ch- a child can have difficulties learning how to read without having a particular developmental language disorder. Um, so... Are reading difficulties, again, not uh, developmental language disorder, just learning how to read, finding it difficult. Are these reading difficulties more common in languages that are that have, like, as we mentioned before, the spelling and the pronunciation have nothing to do with each other? So, for example, uh, OK, I'm not going to take the example of French. I know French doesn't look like anything. Uh, but as we mentioned before, for Spanish is very straightforward, while learning how to read in English with absolute hell. Like, for example, with um, O-U-G-H is the absolute worth. Uh, so, like, tough and thorough and through, or meat and great and threat. Uh, like, how, when I see a word in English, if I've never heard it before, I have no clue how to pronounce it. So how are these, when when growing up and learning I how to read say- Native English speakers also don't know. Exactly. True, to... true, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So are these reading difficulties more common in these? I mean, I assume it, it's yes, but let's just check. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not straightforwardly yes. So because it depends how you um, classify a reading difficulty. So, I mean, what I would say is in transparent languages like Finnish and Spanish, dyslexic readers... Um, obviously that's not the only reading difficulty, but when we're talking about spelling, that's, you know, that's the kind of most obvious one. So in in transparent languages, people with dyslexia tend to um, be slower readers. So even children with reading difficulties tend to learn, you know, that um, the mapping between um, grapheme and phoneme and be able to read quite accurately, quite quickly, but they're slower. Whereas in a language like English, dyslexic readers are slower and less accurate. So it's more obvious. So it really depends on how you um, cl- how you um, define dyslexia. So if it's about making errors, then yes, definitely it's more common in English. But if it's if it's about any kind of difficulty being slow or inaccurate, then arguably it's, it's re- it, basically I can't answer your question because it depends so much. Prevalence depends on how you on on how you define dyslexia, um, and and so different countries define it in different ways. And some countries, like Middle Eastern countries, often um, don't even have a sort of something equivalent to dyslexia, but have reading uh, sorry uh, learning difficulties, and then sort of cu- classify together people with different kinds of learning um, difficulties. So, so, so I think, I think it, I don't think it's unreasonable to argue that dyslexia has something in common across different languages, even languages, you know, logographic um, writing systems like um, in China, and there's something common um, to all of those languages, but whether you can say that it's more prevalent in some languages and others, I think it's, I well, if it is, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's too difficult to say. 
And, and so um, if a child, then we can, we can assume though, if a child has reading difficulties in one language, for example, if we assume like a child who is only taught how to read in one language at school, um, we can assume that if that child has language learning, like reading difficulties, they will also have reading difficulties in the other language. It's not just language dependent. It might just be less visible in the other language. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there was this famous study of this um, Japanese bilingual child. I mean, I could barely remember the details of it, but he he famously was dyslexic in one language and not the other. It was just a case study. But I think, you know, more generally, you're right. You know, if you have difficulties learning to read, particularly if it's in kind of decoding word recognitions, which probably, you know, they have phonological difficulties underlying those difficulties, you are going to find it difficult. It might be that, you know, if your two languages are, we keep saying Spanish, don't we, but English and Spanish, you're probably going to have more difficulties in English and Spanish for the reasons we've um, said. But I think you can be pretty confident that um, that you will have some kind of difficulty. Um, and, you know, we also know that children with dyslexia um, find it hard to learn new languages generally not just to read um so that's a kind of added added potential difficulty I'm actually not 100% sure about that to tell you the truth I think I was looking I we I need to go back to someone because I think it's the question of the initial delay but then the outcomes can be the same I think is kind of how that is with that because we at, at least uh, here in Edinburgh we definitely promote learning a second language helps regardless of what learning like disabilities you may have or whatever, because generally it's that bad thing about having the meta knowledge of whatever you're learning. You can then, you have more tools and resources. We won't say that's detrimental, um, but like, I think it's like, yeah, you won't go in the negative direction at least, but it's, yeah, yeah, no, I your point. So, I mean, probably many children with dyslexia will find it hard to learn, you know, French, for example, Mm -hmm. monolingual, Um, but that's not to say that that child won't benefit from learning yes. that language. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And, um, so f- and so for these children who have difficulties learning how to read for one reason or another, would they, I, I assume that if they live in a country that provides that, they will get additional support f- to learn how to read. Um, and if they receive this support in just uh, one language would it actually help for their reading of the other language as well or like or would they need support in both of these languages that they're trying to learn I mean there's some sort of training that could help both languages so phonological skills could help uh, both languages um you know it depends on writing systems and how if they're the same or different and also it depends what their difficulty is so because we've talked a lot about kind of decoding difficulties dyslexic type profiles but of course there's another kind of reading difficulty which is about comprehension so so we call those children poor comprehenders um usually and if you're a poor comprehender i mean the thing about poor monolingual poor comprehenders those are children who despite lots of exposure to English, if we're talking about English, which of course we always are, um, and uh, despite you know adequate reading instruction, those children have specific difficulties understanding what they read. Um, so if you if you if you take a bilingual or multilingual child who shows that kind of profile, probably nine times out of ten, that will be because they haven't had sufficient exposure to English yet. So they don't have a difficulty, they don't have a diagnosable difficulty. They're just on the, you know, on their English language learning journey and they will get there. So it's really important not to kind of 
put them in this sort of category of special educational need, although arguably they do have a special educational need, just then they need more, you know, support to develop English, but they don't have something, you know, inverted commas, wrong um, with them. So if your difficulty is in sort of comprehension, then then the, the support you get is very likely to be language specific, right? Because it'll be vocabulary and, you know, maybe grammar and sort of higher level skills like inference making. Um, some of those could you know, could be helpful for more than one language, but most of those are going to be specific to the language. I mean, the best thing to do if the child has um, sufficient reading skills is to read, and then they're going to encounter new vocabulary, they're going to encounter different grammatical structures, and they're going to encounter all kinds of high-level stuff, which is what they probably need. Yeah. So we've kind of been talking about more typically developing bilingual populations. Um, we've previously spoken with Dr. Vicky Honoriani here at the University of Edinburgh, who does a lot of research on bilingualism and developmental language disorders. What could you tell us about reading development and reading difficulties for atypical populations? I'm assuming that their development probably doesn't change because they have two languages, or does it? Um, I mean, I suppose in, in the UK, at least, it's very difficult to, I mean, as I've sort of just mentioned, it's very difficult to sort of know when somebody who is still learning English um you know do they have a language problem or is it just that they're still learning English and I think that you know in some ways that's the biggest issue here is is you know we use these sort of standardized tests to decide whether someone's got a language difficulty and those standardized tests are mostly standardized on monolingual English children in the UK or the US um, and then we say oh no you're two standard deviations below what what we would ex expect from a monolingual uh, um, English child so we're gonna you know we're worried about you and that's clearly ludicrous right depending on how long that child's been there and what their um, language exposure has been um, and it also promotes this bilingual norm, which, of course, isn't the global norm. Um, so it, in some ways, to me, that's the bigger problem rather than how how do bilingual how how is it for bilingual um, children with um, developmental language disorder? I mean, that isn't my area at all. I you know have lots of colleagues. I think you talked to Ludo, Ludovica Sertriccio at some point. So she, you know, she knows all about that. Um, so I don't know very much about assessing and diagnosing um, bilingual and multilingual children with, with DLD from my perspective, which is very much sort of typical development, but then sort of educational level uh, difficulties, if you know what I mean, not sort of not, not clinical uh, diagnoses. Um, the, the problem from my perspective is what, what I've just said, is that multilingual children are kind of pathologized essentially for being multilingual or for being early on in their English um, learning. But, I, but I, I don't think, from what I do know about it, that there's any reason to sort of think of, of bilingual children differently in terms of language difficulties, except not to label them as having a language difficulty before you can be confident that, that, that it's, it's not just not enough English. Yet. Yeah. I... Um... I actually, I, I think I, I was just thinking as you were saying, like, oh, you're two standard deviations below a monolingual thing. And it's just, I think that, I, as you mentioned, education to teachers and education to education providers and just practitioners in general is really important. Because, like, I just remembered growing up, we took a standardized test. I think it was called the Terra Nova. And now that I'm saying that out loud, that just means new earth. 
it was the test call that I don't know. Um, but we got assessed almost every single year of maths, reading and writing. And my reading was always higher, which was confusing because I have a reading disability. <laughs> my writing was poor. My maths were fine. And but then now I'm thinking even comparing all of us, we we're all on the standard deviation compared to monolingual populations. And this is a bilingual school. So even if 70 percent of our day is in English, we're still getting technically not as much exposure. So now I'm just thinking like, has the school ever thought about that? <laughs> like, that's kind of an important thing that we shouldn't be baselining ourselves against them. And so it can lead to situations like I was pulled out of classes once I was in like fifth grade. So you're about 10 years old because they were just like, why don't you write like everyone else? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, how about you use a fun little grippy thing on your pencil? And I was like, how is this helping? <laughs> um, and so I like for two or three years, they were like, we don't get what's happening here. And I was like, well, I can read fine when I read a book. But when I'm reading a paper, I mean, like a something written on paper, it doesn't work. And they were just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I was like, ah. but of course, then it's just this thing of like, they just like slap this label of learning difficulty on me. And we're just like, I guess we'll fit someone else can figure it out. Because I mean, in, in education, you know, in, in, in this country, I mean, many teachers are amazing and incredibly knowledgeable and stuff about EAL. But, you know, there is still this kind of feeling of like, oh, that school, they've got really high EAL. That's what I say, high EAL. And actually having high EAL in inverted commas is a wonderful thing from a school because we know that EAL children as a group, uh, you know, do incredibly well. They progress really quickly and they outperform monolinguals in many subjects by the time they get to GCSE. When they're younger in early primary, well, you know, some of them have only been learning English for a couple of years. So, of course, they're not going to have a monolingual vocabulary if you only test them on their English, right, which is another problem. Yeah. Um, but but to sort of see EAL children as this kind of burden, and, it, you know, it's not really teachers, actually. It's the media, isn't it? You yeah. know. Um, yeah. And when, when that's just patent, I mean, no child should be seen as a burden anyway. They have special educational needs, whatever their situation. But to sit, but, you know, I can see that, you know, if you've got children with reading difficulties, for example, um, that, that that requires extra support for that child. But when you've got children who speak more than one language, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity and, you know, actually a way to make learning more interesting and those children are going to do very well generally speaking it's just so misguided to see that in a in a sort of similar category as special educational needs and and disabilities because it's so it's so wrong it really is I honestly think that is a great place for us to end on that message right there I think that is important And we just need to remember that we need to let kids be kids and they'll be okay. (laughs) Um, And just stop shoving them in boxes, (laughs) which is a good thing for everyone. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I I really do like that this has been such a great conversation. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I have a lot to think about as I literally had very, a lot of, very many, a lot of moments of light bulb moments of just realizing things as we were talking. And just uh, thank you so much for um, taking the time to sit down with us and talk about this. This has been fantastic. Yes. My pleasure. I'm sorry you got it a bit political at many points. No, that's, (laughs) it's it's important. It's important. It really shows how all of these problems really just have ramifications Mm. into any and all aspects of bilingualism and uh, language because even just looking at learning how to read Mm. it impacted that as well yeah and your government has a say on that which is unfair honestly that shouldn't be the case so it's it's very important actually to point out that Mm. it is it has ramifications everywhere so thank you
Thank you so much for joining us, Holly. This has been a fantastic conversation. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We are going to be going on our summer break after this episode. But over the summer, you can definitely get in touch with us through our website. You can email us at podcast.mlst.com. If you have any questions or comments or any suggestions you have, we would love to hear what topics you would like to hear in our upcoming season. We will be back in September. Um, But do always remember that you can find all of our episodes on Spotify. You can also find them on our website, mlstpodcast.com, which most episodes have transcripts for. We will be working on getting the rest of those in there. As well, if you'd like to learn more about Holly and all of the wonderful work that she does, you can find links to her university pages and the lab pages on the website. As always, uh, stay safe, stay curious, and... Moi moi. Davai. Masalama. Masalama.